the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com resources for the best return and results. The scriptures say there are two things on earth that will last forever, God's word and the souls of people. It's my hope that you, your family, your church, and perhaps even your business will pray about giving a tax-deductible donation to the Bible Live at this time. Together, let's expand this historic broadcast of the scriptures to other cities across our nation, a sound investment for both time and eternity. You can donate by credit card at the Bible Live website, www.thebiblelive.com, or mail your check for the Bible Live to P.O. Box 18888. That's P.O. Box 18888, San Antonio, Texas 78218. Welcome to the Bible Live Quiz Hour. It's time to test and grow your knowledge of the Bible. The entire Bible every year. On Sunday nights at 9, join us here for the Bible Live Quiz Hour. Sophie will ask questions from the Bible Live leads. You call in with the correct answers, and you win. It's just that simple. So get out your Bible, put on your thinking cap, and hit that speed dial. Because here's the host of The Bible Live. Your Apache Indian scout through the book of books, Soapy Dollar. Tonight, folks, for the Bible Live broadcast, the quiz show here. He'll be joining us from on the road. He and his uh, handsome, smart, intelligent grandson uh, are making their way across South Texas over to uh, what I told him is over to Apache country, over to uh, southern New Mexico. And I'm not sure where he is tonight exactly on my, I hadn't tracked him on my GPS, but I'd sure like to know where he is and what he's up to. He's on the line with us already, so we're ready to get started tonight in the program. But before we do, let me say hi to Jacob and Tavin over there. Where are you, Jacob? Uh, we're actually staying just outside Fort Stockton, and we're going to get up in the morning and continue on. All right. Well, then that's you made good progress in across the state. And, uh, you know, as they say, the sun has risen, the sun has set, and here I am in Texas yet. So it's a, it's a, a big, big state, a big country here, isn't it? It is, and you so scared me with the stories about the Indians, I wanted to spend the night in the Fort Stockton with this cavalry. <laughs> That's good. That's good. No, don't make me laugh. I got a little injured rib this week, and it, and it really hurts. So you can't make me laugh that much this week, all right? I'd appreciate it. Well, I, I'm glad you guys got there safely and all all went well. You got a... A fabulous grandson. Now, we've talked to him on the air here before, folks. He's been a part of our program over the years. He calls in from time to time, and we visit. And uh, Tavin is a fine little Bible scholar. He knows the Scriptures well, and uh, we we are always glad to hear from him. But you guys, I'm glad you're safe and making your way over there to, um, to uh, where is it, Arizona? You're headed Phoenix, maybe? 
yeah, I'm taking him back home to his parents in uh, in Phoenix. Yeah. All right. Well, then um, th- then they can correct all the bad habits Grandpa has taught him on the trip. Well, that's my job. <laughs> all right, well, Jacob. We are. That's right. We're there to spoil them for sure. Well, we are reading this week uh, in our reading schedule. Uh, we finished up the book of Romans last week and read the first chapters, uh, three to four chapters of the book of Ezra. Uh, and we're getting now into what is called the post-exilic books of the Old Testament that after the exile when the people of Israel returned from their 70 years of exile in Babylon. Then we're getting into those now. Uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. And Esther has to do with the time they were there, of course, uh, as well. And uh, and we'll we'll continue on, but uh, th- that's our reading schedule tonight. This week we read Ezra chapters four through ten, and Nehemiah, which is really, I have discovered a favorite book. I believe of a lot a lot of Christian believers really really enjoy the book of Nehemiah. A lot of books have been written about it. Uh, it, it a lot of management uh, people who write books about management principles, business management, and so on. I've written books about Nehemiah, how he accomplished the rebuilding of the wall, uh, the walls of Jerusalem and so on. Uh, a lot has been written by about both of these guys, but I would say in particular Nehemiah, a lot of great lessons. So uh, I hope you're ready to give us some. We can open up with some questions from these books. And, uh, and I'll, I've got a couple of questions ready from the Psalms. Uh, we read one of my favorite Psalms this week as well, Psalm 90 through 94. And Psalm 90 is uh, really a favorite. Uh, it's, it's, it covers some themes that are so powerful uh, for us. So um, let me give a couple of questions from the uh, uh, old, our, test, our readings from the Psalms and the Proverbs, mainly the, the Psalms this week, uh, what we call our wisdom and worship segment. And do you have some questions already selected there from Ezra and Nehemiah? Uh, yeah, I have a few, and there's some interesting facts, I think. Okie doke. And as always, you have uh, some great insights for us. Uh, I do. I, I, one thing occurs to me that I want to m- want to mention. I don't know if you were able to hear last week or not. Uh, you out of pocket and in, in, uh, in getting some deserved time of rest and a little a time of uh, a time away a bit. And, and uh, I don't know if you heard the program, but at the end of the program, we had a couple of callers uh, that called in about the idea in the uh, we were in the book of Romans principally, but we got to talking a little bit about uh, the interpretation of Scripture. And uh, one individual called and said, well, you know, uh, I, I'm one. Sometimes I take some of the things that the scriptures metaphorically they're, they're, uh And he mentioned specifically the uh, tearing of the curtain that divides the holy place from the holy of holies in the temple you know it's mentioned there in the gospels that uh when jesus died on the cross that the curtain was torn from top to bottom uh, and that is that dividing place between uh the holy place and in the actual very presence of god the holy of holies and uh, and of course it's always understood as a beautiful uh at the very least a beautiful symbolic uh uh act or uh, event that pictures the fact that we are now because of uh, the atoning work of Messiah, we, because of the redemptive plan of God having reached its fulfillment there, we are now free to enter into the very presence of God. We are, we are made able by his uh, atoning work to enter into God's presence. And so that, you know, the, the idea of the curtain being torn from top to bottom, meaning it began with God, not, not something that men did. 
uh, but that he accomplished this. And so this uh, gentleman called in and, and mentioned that he thought m- maybe that that particular event was metaphorical. He said, well, because you know, there's not that much access, not the general public would not know about the temp- the curtain being torn because it's a restricted area in the temple. And that his feeling was that that was a metaphorical statement in the Gospels that that was symbolizing the same. It was actually saying the same thing. Now, the the access to God and the relationship with God is made clear and open because of the atoning work of Messiah. Well, then someone else called and was, you know, not upset, I wouldn't say, but very zealous to defend the uh, historicity and the literal nature of the scriptures. That this really happened. It, no, there was. This was a Passover, and so it could very well be that there were people who witnessed it and saw it. And so, uh, because that's one of the things the first individual had said is that uh, you know it's in a place, the Holy of Holies, there in in the uh, in the temple. That you know, if it did literally happen, there would not be very many people seeing it, and the ones that did see it would you know that probably wouldn't be uh, uh, broadcasting it that widely, and so on. Uh, and so it, it kind of we ended our program with a little bit of uh, discussion and maybe just a slight bit of controversy there. I tried to kind of make peace. I, it's it's my view. I don't have any problem myself taking it literally. I explained, but at the same time, it's it's uh, the, the veracity of the gospel, the truthfulness, and the and the accuracy of the gospel message is not affected. Uh, either way, we understand that particular passage. I think the second caller was a little bit worried that once you start down that path of of uh, making things a metaphor and not understanding them literally, that it, it's a dangerous path, you know, because somehow it, it compromises the truth claims uh, of the gospel of the scriptures. And I think I can understand that as well. I think you have to be very careful about doing that. But I, I was just wondering, I, I wished you had been here, actually, last week. Uh, do you get the nature of that discussion and so on? I, I'd like to hear a little bit, uh, maybe some of your uh, thoughts in terms of, as, a, as a historian, as someone who looks at the Scriptures and in terms of their veracity, of, yours, the, of course, their reliability, uh, but also from the point of archaeology and so on, that what we can actually prove. Uh, in, uh, and even if we use the word prove, you know, we have to... Uh, use that with a grain of salt. Uh, it, it's more strong evidence, I think, that we uh, can have. But wh- would you have anything about that? I don't want to surprise you with that. We, I can go ahead and ask my questions and give you a little no, time to think about it. But I wonder if you have a thought about it. Well, I uh, well, I, well, I thought about what I've read. <laughs> but um, well, but now the, you're an expert uh, in your I, own opinion, so I'm I'm expecting you to have some. <laughs> Some idea. Here. But I say how I am. I say I am fine, but I'm open to a second opinion. But um, but no, it's actually if I may take a, an advantageous middle ground, I would say it's both. Actually, recorded in Jewish history is that at the conquering, because we're talking about uh, things happening at the. Uh, you're talking about a particular time when the. Uh, when Jesus uh, was there and and his his events that he did caused the ripping of the curtain, I just, think we need to know the just curtain. Two th- just 2,000 years ago, that's all. So, that, uh, so the curtain is so very thick, I do not remember how thick, but it's like two or three feet. It yeah. could be impossible for a human being to rip it open. Right. Uh, but there are recordings that when certain 
bad, bad things happened. For example, when the Babylonians came to get the temple, uh, the doors, it's actually recorded in Talmud, and I'm, I'm shortening it for uh, clarity's sake, but certain events are recorded as happening, such as the doors opening, uh, of the um, temple, um, a couple of things inside the temple, uh, things happened to them. The curtain did get actually ripped at that time. And uh, now I know we're reading it as though uh, as though it was the idea of granting access from you no longer needed the priest. Uh-huh. It was access from the idea of from earth to heaven, and that was supposed to be presented by Jesus, correct? Yes, and the idea is that now we have, even now as the people of God, we become a kingdom of priests, and, and so that we've we. We are part of now the process of helping people know God and so on. But, uh, yeah, you're right. I think essentially that was it, that we now can come boldly into the throne of grace, as the book of Hebrews says, because of the atoning work of Messiah. Well, and with the event, the reason I said I'll take the middle ground is because the event itself, as we talk about it, we're not just saying, hey, did you know the curtain ripped? Uh, we're talking about it as having some other meaning. In other words, it does have, yes. uh, you might say, a symbolic meaning, even though it factually may have occurred. Do yes. you follow my logic? Here? Exactly, yes. That's what so, I, one of the things I mentioned last week is that I, I'm not really hard and fast. I don't, I don't get panicky. I don't get uh, upset if someone I have actually read and studied that is a viable uh, point of view that some scholars have about that particular passage. And uh, if, if you look at uh, if you study it, then you'll see that uh, th- there are some who thought who think that that, that is doesn't necessarily have to be literally true. It could be something that was said, uh, again, metaphorically to to demonstrate the truth that now the access is made open. Uh, I don't well, have any problem being orthodox no, about it in that and I, know, understanding I, it that I way, but it could be seen both ways. I, yeah, I don't see what I would do. Here is the uh, another consideration that really doesn't get thought about. When uh, Titus uh, was representing the Romans, of course, destroyed the temple and tore things down, uh, he walked in to the Holy of Holies. Now, I'm, I'm quoting Jewish history at this point. Uh-huh. And he, he went into the temple because the, uh, they had, he had gained access. So not only was... You may say good people gaining access, but bad people also. And so he came in, and he looked around in what we call the Holy of Holies, and there was nothing there. And he was startled, and he came back and he said, these Jews are crazy. There's nothing here. <laughs> and they don't even have a God. Because, you know, he was thinking of a, a idol or something you'd see, touch, that kind of thing. Uh-huh. And so it was done. He actually made that comment. Subsequent to that, uh, something did happen to him. And the way it's recorded in the Jewish history in the Talmud is it was rather unpleasant, and he died. Wasn't he the uh, one, take, even in the book of Acts, doesn't it record, was he the one that was uh, consumed in some way, a kind of a horrible uh, disease or death that he's, is it, am, I, am, am I wrong about that? I think it's actually mentioned in the book of Acts. Yeah. He had some pretty bad things happen to him. Yes, there was that his basically his body, his mind was uh, he developed some kind of a buzzing in his head. Some people attributed it to a fly, and uh, he, and some people were attributing it. 
Hi, Tavin. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was telling him, please uh, cold it down a little bit. All right. Um, the uh, anyway, so um, yeah, he and, he and his body basically rotted on his bones, you might say. Yeah. Uh, and this recording thing is always fascinating me is how it recorded that. Uh, some buzzing was in his head, and it, was, it drove him basically insane, they say. So so there is, going back to the curtain, you see, the curtain does get ripped, and the symbol, uh, I think factually it, it happened. Right. Because uh, I'm aware of other incidents where things like that are recorded that happened, like when Babylon took the temple. Yes. And um, you'll find that when those things happen, the some people would consider them maybe mystical. Some people consider them just to be things that uh, some, perhaps some human being caused to happen. But no matter how you approach it, the, those incidents are recorded as happening. So I have no issue with the fact that the curtain ripped. But I think that curtain ripped, ripping, I, from what I'm familiar with, it's got a good aspect and a not-so-good aspect. Um, because uh, about that. You, yeah, well, you remember one of the passages that uh, Jesus said. Um, I said uh, he said something about um, the evil men take the kingdom of God mm-hmm. by violence, by force. Yeah. Well, evil men cannot take the kingdom of God by violence. They can't storm heaven and the gates and take heaven. So what they can take is the temple. Hmm. And so with the, with the curtain being ripped, shall we say, let's say it happened factually, then it also has a certain symbols. And, all, and one of the examples of that would be Titus and his crowd. And so it actually has the idea of when he walked in and he proclaimed to all his Romans and to the Jews, it's a fake, it's a fraud, there's nothing there, there's no idol, there's no God, there's nothing. And so hmm. with that curtain ripping, gave access to people to come and say, there's nothing here. There is no God. So we can approach from a positive point of view of saying, well, uh, it, you could approach God yourself. Well, you actually, hmm. you did have the priest to do the ceremony uh, that was always instilled by yeah. the laws of God. But a person could always approach God on their own. They didn't have to go to the Holy of Holies. In the Holy of Holies, that was a performance that took place only by the priest. In fact, since we're talking about that, and you know in the book of Ezra that we're talking about tonight, yes. did you know that when they went back, you know, only a, well, I don't know, was it approximately only 10,000 returned with Ezra. And among them, and this is fascinating, there were no priests that were worthy under the law to serve as a priest. And that's fascinating. Ezra and Nehemiah, that you mentioned, those are not Levites. Nehemiah is basically a politician. And uh, Ezra, uh, wasn't Nehemiah somewhere in the Davidic line? I, I'm not sure. I, I know he was a governor, appointed as the governor of Israel uh, by the by the um, emperor at that time. And Ezra was a scribe, I know, uh, a scholar, a very de- a great devotion to the scriptures, but uh, was not was not a Levite. You're exactly right. So they had to spend time uh, commissioning and uh, the the rituals of purification and dedication ceremony for for uh, to put in to install a new 
uh, a new group of uh, Levi- Levitic, Levitic priests, right? Is, wasn't that part of the process that we see in these two books? Ezra yeah, well, yes, exactly. So and historically, believe it or not, these were not two books. Historically, they were considered one book. Okay. But as time went on and people got smarter, they were divided till two. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, there was, uh, you know, about, I guess, 348. Of course, when they first were allowed to have the first expedition back, taking people back, as, as you say in your questions, they discovered an old order that was put aside that allowed the rebuilding of the temple. And based on that, you know, Darius let them go back. Well, you just answered one of our questions. That's great. <laughs> That's good. Well, the, no, this, the, the time that these guys lived actually is incredibly fascinating and probably as much of a uh, historical evidence for the veracity of the Scriptures, the reliability of the Scriptures, and even the supernatural inspiration, the source of the Scriptures. Uh, Ezra and Nehemiah are both incredibly strong in that basis because uh, this this uh, return of the exiles from Babylon was very unusual. Neither Babylon nor Persia nor the Medo-Persians, none of these nations, it wasn't their practice to allow people to return. Uh, this was a very, this was a a solid and, and established practice to remove people, particularly uh, a, a, Intelligent, the intelligentsia, the uh, higher-ranking people, the upper class people, the politicians, the people who have uh, any ties to the royal lineages in these countries, and so on. They would remove them from the culture so that they. It was a it was a practice to make sure that that land remained under their power, under their uh, control, and so it was not the practice usually to return people to their land. And yet, uh, of course, it was predicted by Jeremiah, both Isaiah and Jeremiah, that after 70 years uh, in exile, that God would restore them based on the promises of, of Leviticus even, where, where we said that if, if, the, if my people repent, if wherever they are, they turn from God, I, I may remove them from the land, he said, but if they repent and turn back to me, I will restore them. And so uh, there were these uh, predictions that they would be restored. And lo and behold, through a series of very unusual events, and they are actually given official. Not only uh, not only did they managed to get back to Israel, but they were given official permission, and actually even protection and covering, to go back to in, and reestablish and rebuild the, the the altar and the temple and the uh, and the wall uh, around Jerusalem and so on. And that's what the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are principally about these these groups that went back beginning with Zerubbabel uh I, I think the first group was something like it seems to me like I remember it being 40 to 45,000 who go back and then uh about 8 years later I think it is that uh Ezra goes back with his or 80 years I'm sorry 80 years later he goes back with the group and as you mentioned somewhere around 10,000 um I could be you and I could have a difference about some of these numbers I'm not quite sure but um, I'm talking off the top of my head, which is not a very good thing for me to do. But uh, that's what the, the theme of these two books is: the restoration, then, of of, of the scriptures, uh, of the altar, of the temple, and of the walls around Jerusalem, and the restoration of the people. A lot of that is that reminding the people who returned of who they are and whose they were. It, you know, the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These most, almost all of these men and women now were born in exile. Uh, they were they were raised yeah. in Babylon. They were, yeah, they were born in exile. In fact, I don't know if you know this or not, but you know one of the great theories among the people who attack the Bible, the Torah, 
Uh, they like to use what they call the what, J, E, P, and D, whatever it is. Yes, you know, well, Hausen's you know. Yes. All right. Well, this is fascinating. In fact, there are other, other books that will say, oh, well, this is actually kind of constructed to make the Levites heroes. Now, that to me has always been fascinating because when you go to Ezra and Nehemiah, the folks that are the least heroes are the Levites and the coins or the priests. In fact, um, Ezra had to, he got a copy of the Torah, and in fact, in chapter uh, seven, verse uh, ten, it says Ezra devoted himself to the study of God's Torah and its observance, and teaching the statutes and the laws among the Israelites. So he had to study it himself and become knowledgeable. Now he's not a priest. And if the theory was that the priests were supposed to be the heroes, and they rewrote basically the whole Bible to make themselves the hero, conquering heroes, then that seems to be really a strange way to become a hero to say that there was no priest worthy to serve in the temple. Ezra simply was, as you said, a scribe, obviously uh, a good student. He studied the laws. He knew what to do. And when he did that, he then implemented some of the laws that are really – People read, and on the surface, they sound rather offensive, like, you know, no marrying pagan wives, no, no intermarriage, that yes. kind of thing. Yes, exactly. That in particular was something maybe we can talk about tonight. Uh, some people see that as a, a, an incident of uh, racism. And, and, of course, I, I think we can understand clearly from the Scriptures that race uh, had nothing to do with it. It wasn't race. It, it had to do with the laws of God. It had to do with uh, uh, fidelity and loyalty to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the, and the distinct commands that had been put on the people of Israel about uh, relationships and about marital um, marriage in particular, how important that is to the, a culture and to a people group. So we can talk about that further. We've, we've used it up by our first segment here, Jacob, but I'm so happy you added that element of the background. Uh, I, I wanted to touch on that again because last week we didn't really have a time to kind of flesh it out and give a little bit more explanation to it. So I appreciate you taking time to give us that perspective. There's our music. Uh, for our first segment, folks, you are welcome to give us a call if you'd like about this topic or about anything that you'd like to talk about about the scriptures, uh, particularly the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, if you'd like. And we'll come back in a moment and put out some questions that you can answer uh, by giving us a phone call, 340-9585. Jacob and I will be back, and uh, we'll be uh, making available some tickets to Splashtown this summer for you and your family, just as our way of saying thank you for being a part of the program. 340-9585. We'll be right back. Dr. Stan Shelton with offices at Loop 410 and Broadway has taken care of the Dollar family that's Suzanne and me plus our three children for the past 25 years. Suzanne, tell the folks about our dentist. Well, like you say, Dr. Shelton is a dentist for a lifetime. He's got the latest technology. He's busy, but I've never had to wait. And I never dread going to the dentist. In fact, he and his staff are so personable that I actually rather enjoy it. Go to DrShelton.com or call 590-7878. It's going to be a hot summer, but not when you're driving. BNR Auto is your first name in affordable AC repair in San Antonio. Located downtown at 2401 West Commerce, our specialists will check your air conditioning for free. Call us at 215-1519 for all your car or truck repair services. We do the repair work no one really wants to do, and we do it right. Don't drive in this heat. BNR Auto stands for Burr. 
Mention the Bible Live for a 10% discount. Dennis Prager here with an important message. We spend our whole lives taking care of those we love. However, statistics show that over half of all adults fail to have a will prepared. Giving the gift of a well-prepared estate plan is one of the most loving things you can do for those you care about. So let me introduce you to Charlie Weisinger with Weisinger Law Firm. Charlie is an estate planning attorney who takes the time to get to know you and your family and your goals and desires for them. Charlie makes the process simple. Most clients have a plan in place in as little as two visits. Give Charlie Weisinger and his staff at Weisinger Law Firm a call today. Your first consultation is free. Weisinger Law Firm is conveniently located one mile north of 1604 in Selma, Texas. You can reach him at 210-308-0800. That's 210-308-0800. Or online at WeisingerLawFirm.com, W-E-I-S-I-N-G-E-R, LawFirm.com. Join Barry Bass every weekday morning for the KSLR Morning Ministries, including Through the Bible, Renewing Your Mind, Truth for Life, and Focus on the Family. Weekdays from 6 to 10 on AM 630 KSLR and KSLR.com. I'm the one with two left feet Standing on a lonely street I can't even walk a straight line And every time you look at me I'm swinging like an orange leaf Bound to hit bottom sometime You're listening to The Bible Live with Soapy Dollar Without someone to save me Someone who won't let me fall for being a part of the program tonight. Jacob is with me. He's on the road tonight uh, across the state of Texas, but we're, by the magic of modern technology, we're able to visit with you together and comment as we look at the passages from the book of Ezra, uh, these two books of history, Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, these returning groups of exiles from the Babylonian exile and coming back and under Ezra, rebuilding of the temple and under Nehemiah, the rebuilding of the walls around Jerusalem. Uh, after those uh, years of exile, we were just mentioning the fact that uh, the men and women who made it back were born in exile. They they had, to some degree, become dis- disconnected from uh, the core, the heartbeat of their of their faith, and their, that unique calling on them as the people of Israel, the people of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and their calling to uh, their special place in the redemptive plan of God. God called on these on them as a people group to to follow him to be faithful to him he revealed himself in a very special way to them and uh and uh was using them in in as part of the redemptive plan a part of the plan to reveal himself uh, not only to their own nation their own people group but to all the people groups around them the persians the egyptians the moabites the uh the lands and and country and and people groups who uh, came in touch with them through the centuries and so God is using them and uh, has used them for that purpose. And so that Ezra and Nehemiah, part of their task is now to remind the people who they are and whose they are, who they belong to as the people of God, and to help them to come back again, to recuperate and re, uh, reconnect with that identity uh, and their covenant relationship with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So um, that's where we are. And let me give a couple of questions from the book of Psalms. And then Jacob has got some questions selected from Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, I mentioned before that the book, uh, the Psalm 90 is one of my favorite. Uh, Its theme is is, 
uh, is amazing. It talks about time. It talks about uh, God who is said to be without beginning or end and so on. Well, uh, I'm going to ask you a very easy question. The oldest psalm in the Bible is considered to be thought to be Psalm 90, the oldest one uh, in the uh, all the psalms. And I want to ask you, uh, historically or uh, traditionally at least, who was Psalm 90 written by? Do you happen to know that? Who was uh, thought to be the author of Psalm 90, the oldest psalm in the Bible? And then jumping down to Psalm 92, uh, I like these to hear the psalmist uh, using uh, the animal kingdom and, and pictures from, from nature uh, in their talks. It's always kind of interesting to me. Uh, and in Psalm 92... The psalmist says that God has made him, the psalmist, as strong as a certain wild animal. White wild animal is cited there that God had made. God has made me as strong as what? What animal is cited there in Psalm 92, verse 10? Give us a call if you'd like, 340-9585. You can answer any of these. Uh, then we we have some uh, tickets to Splashtown, maybe some tickets and uh, coupons from uh, some gift certificates from uh, Rose Cleaners as well. And we'll throw uh, the kitchen sink in there. Whatever we've got to be able to give to you, we'll be sending that along. So give us a call, 340-9585. And now Jacob has some questions. Uh, from Ezra and Nehemiah. Let's see what uh, what he's got in, cook, in store for us. Well, how about, uh, I'm going to kind of jump into the controversial ones. How's that? Oh, how unlike you. <laughs> uh, okay. All right, and uh, your number, um, uh, so your number is six, I believe. Okay. Yeah, uh, yeah it says, um, Number six, it says, shortly after arriving in Jerusalem, Ezra is told of a practice among the Jews living there that drives him to uh, his knees in tears and remorse uh, for Israel's sin. What sin was he confessing? The answer is in Ezra 9.1. All right. Ezra 9.1. We we mentioned or referred to this just a while ago. There was this uh, particular practice that it, it, it really did Ezra made quite a show of his repentance, of his remorse, of his sorrow about this. And I don't know how we will understand it today in our modern era, but uh, hopefully you can shed some light and help us understand why this was so concerning to uh, Ezra, this spiritual leader that God was using uh, to help guide the people back to their faith and back to their unique calling. Anything else from Ezra? Or you have want to go to yeah, just, one, just one more, just one more in conjunction with that. Uh-huh. Uh, number nine. Uh, what did he do to show that, that uh, they not only regretted that sin, but they were repenting, turning away from that sin? The answer is in ten. Three and it's in conjunction with it. All right. So the people did respond to Ezra's message. Uh, they reacted yeah. to it, and they they tried to make this right. They tried to repent and turn away from their sin. And so uh, again, a, a little alarming in our day and age. But the, this is what happened, and we can talk about it tonight. It's in uh, chapter ten, verse three. What did the people do to demonstrate clearly that, that their faith in God and their repentance? And in response to the message of Ezra. Okay, that's uh, two good questions from there. Let's go uh, to the book of Nehemiah. Sure. Let's start off, if you don't mind, with uh, year number six of Nehemiah. Okay. This is something I think for people to know. It's easy to relate to other stories, too. How many of Nehemiah's prayers, I'm sorry, number six, uh, wrong one. 
number five. Okay. What was Nehemiah's job or position in the service of the king? The answer is in one eleven. Very interesting experience in here. Uh, I, I think of uh, I think of Joseph actually. Uh, somehow it makes me think of that. Uh, a different era, different time, different kingdom, different experience. But just a little yeah. hint for folks: uh, What was Nehemiah's job? As Jacob said earlier, he's not a priest. Uh, he, he has a certain role and job in the uh, in the household of the emperor. Of that, and was this uh, this was Artaxerxes? Is that correct? Um, I well, I believe that would be Artaxerxes, yeah. Would be Artaxerxes. Uh, and this was the same uh, Persian emperor, I believe, that was involved with, uh, you know, the movie uh, 300 with the Battle of, um, oh, what was it, the, it, it, the, with the 300 Greeks. Uh, fought, I think that was Artaxerxes. It might have been Artaxerxes 2 or 1, I'm not sure. But uh, we're, we're into those emperors, this this great empire, the Persian Empire. And Nehemiah had a job in the service of the emperor, the king. And so we're asking... Yeah, have you ever... Uh, I take it you've seen that movie. Oh, I have. Uh, a number of times, actually. I, I'm fascinated by that uh, particular battle. It was uh, a pivotal battle in history. And it's, of course, well attested by secular history as well. Sure. In fact, uh, one of the interesting things is, of course, those were the Spartans, and the Spartans were not flattering people themselves. I mean, their customs and the. But uh, what's interesting, I don't know if you ever read the book that's uh, behind the movie. No. But what, it's incredible. It's tiny print. It goes on for, I don't know, a thousand pages. But they put a couple lines in the movie that's actually in the book. Oh, wow. Say, hey, well, what an amazing concept. <laughs> Yeah, I love the one line when they say, we'll darken the skies with our arrows. And uh, the Spartan says, well, great, we'll fight in the shade. <laughs> yeah, I do remember that. that that's a, a striking uh, quote. And, and the, you'll yeah. this, when they stand back and got the other Spartans to come fight them, because the 300 basically had done an outstanding job, you know, and uh, they, got this, they, they yelled a word. And you know the word because it's the name of a tennis shoe. Do you know what that word is? Uh, Adidas? No. Uh, it's not that. No. Oh, I know what it is. It's a. Uh, 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 do you know what it is, John? John's giving me a hint on paper here. He doesn't have a microphone in front of him, but I think it's Nike. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Nike uh, or something. Yeah, victory. Victory. Nike, yeah. Is that right? I thought it that was the Japanese word, to tell you the truth. Uh, well, I would prefer you tell me the truth, but no. <laughs> all right. Yes. Uh, wrong. Uh, all right. Uh, was Nike was, uh, oh, was he a, a, a Greek uh, mythological deity? No, no. I, I, it just means victory. So they run it. So they ran back, and they were great long-distance runners. Oh, I see. Yes. Uh, so, and so that's, you know, Nike tennis shoe victory, the long-distance running, that kind of thing. We, we get the idea of the marathon comes from... Uh, Marathon was a city, wasn't it, that uh, one of the runners raced to the city to win them? It's true, yes. Okay, listen, going back to Nehemiah. Okay. uh, How about this? There's a, you're you're number nine, uh, and I'm going to have to use a word because it's what it says in the book. I know this will be tantalizing, but uh, there's, uh, there's something that goes on in Nehemiah. And number nine is then Sabalat, the governor of Samaria, and uh, Tobiah, the Amorite, tried to discourage Nehemiah and uh, the people with ridicule and mockery. What was Nehemiah's response? Answers in four. Four. 
I think that was answer applies to a number of different uh, times in the book of Nehemiah. This is a book unusual in some way. One of the unique nature, uh, unique things about the book of Nehemiah, is the Mm -hmm. number of times that that um, these experiences uh, Nehemiah actually records uh, something very unusual. let, Let me go ahead and. Mention it. You mentioned. Oh, well, no, I don't want to because it'll give away that that answer to that question. But uh, we'll talk about it later. This it's one of the uh, characteristics of the Book of Nehemiah that uh, Nehemiah records in his presentation in his uh, book about what the things that happened in that era. He also records uh, about ten different times he records this. So we'll uh, we'll look at that further. But uh, your your question is when Sanballat, the governor of Samaria, and Tobiah, the Ammonite. When they tried to discourage Nehemiah and the people, discourage them, distract them from their from their task mm-hmm. of rebuilding the wall with ridicule and mockery, what was Nehemiah's response? And again, the answer is in chapter four, Nehemiah chapter four, verse four. So, it, you want to try one more, or is that enough? Yeah, yeah. There's one more that relates to that, and actually, this was the word I thought might be a troublesome, but it's your number thirteen. Okay. Sanballat, uh, Tobiah, Gershom. The Arab. Uh, the other enemies tried five times to distract Nehemiah or trap him uh, uh, by inviting him to a meeting. What did uh, Nehemiah tell them? Answers in 6 3. <laughs> and uh, actually, the reason I was thinking that's going to be a little problem because uh, it does mention specifically the word Arab. And the word Arab's definition is not what we think it is today. All right. Sanballat, Tobiah, and Gershom the Arab. You're exactly right. That is mentioned in the text. And so that'll be good to talk about it. it, it very interestingly, they they invite, they try to distract Nehemiah from his work, his task. Uh, so interesting to me, by inviting him to a meeting. Uh, the, the, isn't that what politicians do when they don't want to face an issue? Uh, we're studying it. We're going to have meetings. <laughs> <clears throat> and, and, uh, We're going to talk about policy, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and Nehemiah has uh, a correct answer for them. Maybe our, our president, maybe some of our Congress people can pay attention to Nehemiah's answer and uh, focus in on what they're supposed to be doing. That's found in chapter 6, verse 3. What was Nehemiah's response to this attempt to yeah, distract you know, and, and so, Yeah, case. and so I just want to add a little quick one thing about the uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, these are clearly these are not priests. They had to go out and round up everybody. Of course, they had some political contacts, I gather. But they had to go and round up people, and they had to get even find some priests that would qualify. And because a lot of the priests, and I know you're, you're a lover of the Psalms, uh, in Psalm 137, there's a, the Psalm about um, uh, when the, the Babylonians had conquered everybody and took them away, they requested them to play songs, and on their their instruments, and and they would have to uh, sing songs from the temple and, and Psalm 137. That's not really recorded there, but it's there, but you, unless you know the story, you will interpret it correctly. But they were required to keep playing those songs until the priest's thumbs fell off. Oh, my goodness. That's why a lot of them would be maimed, and there would be no qualified priest. And so they would had to find down people. On the, uh, on the recruitment, I'm, I'm sure. I suppose it would. Yeah, and I know you're a guitar player, but uh, 
<laughs> any rate, <laughs> so, anyway. what, was it because the priests played to their thumbs? Oh, oh, I get it now. I didn't realize that. Well, yeah, it says, for our pagan captors demanded a song from us. Our tormentors insisted on a joyful hymn and sing us one of those songs of Jerusalem. And how, but how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a pagan land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget how to play the harp. May my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I fail to remember you, if I don't make Jerusalem my greatest joy. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly right. It's a beautiful aspect of Psalm 137. Good. Yeah, and all that stuff was used, uh, of course, when they left, they left their, uh, when they finished playing and they could no longer play, they left their harps and their lyres uh, hanging on the limbs of trees. Mm. But um, what's fascinating is that they were forced to play until they became maimed. And, and to me, that brings, of course, pictures of uh, the Holocaust, because, you know, a lot of the Jews that could play instruments, violins, whatever, were forced to play music for the Nazis while, during uh, assassinations and other things. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting how history repeats itself. Oh, interesting and sometimes uh, so discouraging and fatal. But sometimes good things uh, repeat themselves as well. God's uh, working in history, and sometimes that comes around as well, so we can... Revival sometimes comes back around and the and the tables are turned. Well, let's go to our phones. Uh, we do have a caller on the line. He's been there for quite a while, and I want to bring him up. Harold is joining with us tonight from here in San Antonio. Harold, say hi to Jacob and uh, tell us what's on your mind tonight. Hi, Jacob. Uh, well, I got one hey. of my questions answered already. I, I know what's wrong with me. I got flies in my head. But, um, you know, I think that's what it is. But uh, I got a, just a couple of things. Uh, I got about four different Bible studies going on at once. And uh, over there at, uh, on Father's Day, Harold went with me. My son went with me on Father's Day service. And, uh, you know, it, it was the first time that he was in a church on a Father's Day, you know, like an event where you honor the fathers. And if you have a good dad, your son's stand up, you know, and uh, the sermon to this afternoon was about uh, the book of Revelation, and it talks about, uh, he explained how the Revelation talks about the God of the past, the God of the future we're looking forward to, and I I like the way Pastor Kemp, how he puts it, I don't know about y'all, but I need a God right now. You know, uh, I need a right now God. That's actually how he said it. But, you know, I have a question also, um, probably uh, probably for Jacob, maybe. Uh, in uh, my other bi- um, Bible study, um, i got so many things going. i got a certain thing I do at home, you know, with the Bible, and a certain bunch of things I do at work with a different type of study. And then at Barnes & Noble, I'm researching different things. But Saturday morning, uh, in in our Bible study there, uh, a gentleman was asked to read Joshua chapter 2, verse 1. Verse one. And the reason I'm bringing that up, you know, it says, uh, now Joshua the son sent out two, two men. And every one of our Bibles in there had two men. But this one gentleman had, uh, I think it's a Fox edition, where his said 12. And we talked about it being a typo. And I just wondered, this has bothered me all weekend, uh, how the, you know, the King James, the NLT, the ESV, uh, the JPS, it says 
Now Joshua, the son of Nun, sent out two men. And why does the Fox edition, of it would be just the Old uh, Testament books, why would that say 12 men? Jacob, would you have any idea with that, or do you need more time with it next week? Uh, no, I think that 12 is a prestigious error. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's what they had said. It's a type O. And I said, well, it can't be a type O. Could you be a little more clear about your opinion there, Jacob? That way. So, uh, yeah, uh, mine says two. And, of course, sometimes it, uh, much is made of the fact that there are only two that he didn't want to make the same mistake yeah. that they made 40 years before, you know, in sending 12 and all. Uh, yeah. Is Fox a particularly a Jewish uh, translation or something, a Hebrew translation? Yes. It is? I would say it is, yeah. Uh, so it is more of a Hebrew... Uh, uh, yes, I, and I was wondering if there's something else involved there that we don't know about. Jacob, are you still... But there? they said it was a typo. No, I think Fox, I don't know if Fox himself was Jewish. I don't know. He was a Hebrew scholar. He did translate okay. the Bible as literally, uh, and he tried to do it as best he could, and he was, there's no doubt, he's a scholar, and he's very versatile with his language. I say that in a meaning a complimentary thing. But, uh, yeah. he was, uh, but he did try to translate it literally, and therefore sometimes it gets a little confusing. Uh, I, I think the number is nothing more than, a, as you put it, a typo. But, you know, when you start off talking about that you knew what was wrong with the buzzing in your head, that may yeah, be put this part way. of it. What's that buzzing around your head, Harold? <laughs> well, you know, I, I actually said I felt kind of strange, and I said, well, maybe the two means six and six, and they said no, six and six still adds up to twelve, and yeah, I guess that's enough of that. But anyway, um, well, look, look, to answer your question about Psalms ninety, I guess that'd be most one interesting second. When the okay. twelve spies announced, ten came back, the, and they said, mm -hmm. yeah, "I'm talking about with Moses." Okay. Okay. Yeah. The, uh, the two came back and were very, very committed. And when the ten said, "Hey, those guys are like giants, and we're grasshoppers," and you know, dot dot dot, two of the guys said, "Yeah, so that means we can win. Let's go win." Who were those two guys? Caleb and that's where it came from. Maybe that's where they got the 12. He's talking about all 12 of them. Oh, well, what I'm yeah, saying okay. is, back with Moses, two of them came back and were very loyal and very faithful. And it was Joshua and Caleb. Yeah, and Joshua married uh, Rahab, right? Well, okay. Yeah, Jewish tradition. Of, but the idea is that this is Joshua now sending, so he only sends two. Instead yeah. of 12, right? Yeah. Is that the idea you're going at, driving? Forward? Yeah. And then she yeah. let him down the rope, and then he married her. That's what I heard. <laughs> you Have you heard that? Head. They were married. That's what I heard. Well, okay. I can't find it. Go ahead. That's because yeah. it is Jewish tradition. It is mentioned in Jewish writings. It is mentioned in the Talmud that Joshua married Rahab. And if I if memory serves, uh, this is all the topic a little bit for tonight, but if memory serves, I recall that there is no genealogy listed for uh, Joshua or Rahab, if, if indeed he married her, but there's no genealogy listed. 
that's one of the glaring things that seems to be missing. Except that she is mentioned in the genealogy of uh, Messiah, of Jesus, in the New Testament. That is correct. Which is interesting. That's pretty good. Yeah. I guess I'm just missing everybody. I missed last week, and I've just got a lot on my mind. And, I, you know, I really enjoy doing all these things. But I'll let y'all guys run. I mean, I did answer that 90. The 90. What is it? Was it? Uh, Psalms. Psalm 90. Yeah, Moses. Because I saw Moses there in the book. I'm sorry. I cheated. I, I, I want to give you a, a round of applause there because you deserve it. Uh, oh, that's great. Oh, man, I'm, I'm yeah. Okay, I'm going to get up early in the morning. I'll see you all later. You bet. Good to talk with you, Harold. Let's go right away immediately right. talk with Bob, if he's still there with us. I think Bob is on uh, line two. Just a second, Bob. Hang on. Oh, he's just lost him. Uh, hey, um, Bob, can anybody hear me? We'd love to hear him. Yeah, yeah, Jacob, go ahead. Okay, I was just saying that because uh, uh, something's happening. I'm getting faded so low that I can't hear anybody in, like, Bob or whatever. I'm keeping my eye on your uh, levels here. I can see it, okay. it has dropped, but I'll, I'll try to keep it up high for us, okay? I, uh, yes, I should be. I always have an eye on me to make sure I'm on the level. <laughs> You're the right level. You always are. Well, there we have it. Folks, if you'd like to give us a call and talk about any of these passages, Isaiah, uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, this is a remarkable time in history. The people are returning, as was predicted and prophesied by uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, the 70 years of exile and so on. And I think it was Isaiah. Let me see if I can. Uh, I may have had that somewhere in my notes. One of them actually predicted that a the name, one of them actually predicted the name of the king or the emperor that would allow them to come back i'm looking for that in my notes here as well uh that's always that's pretty amazing when you have an actual name being predicted that uh uh is told who what this man's name is going to be and he's going to allow the people of israel to come back to um israel from their time of exile um i don't see it here now but i'm off the top of my head doesn't your notes read Daniel? But did Daniel write before the uh, Babylonian return of the exiles? Yes. A part of the book uh, is, for sure. Yeah, that's those uh, pages. Jeremiah wrote that what will happen. Daniel and his friends were there as it happened. And then subsequent to that, when... Uh, Cyrus became the conquering king, yes. and I actually took over Babylon, Babylonian, uh, Babel. The, uh, then he told them that this was written down, and uh, this was predicted you'd do this, and supposedly, and I'm not saying this is correct, but uh, the history that's been related to me is that that's one of the reasons that Cyrus, uh, I have, I've actually, it's in the text, I think it's chapter 3 of Ezra, that when Darius goes back and finds the order by Cyrus that the temple at a certain time will be rebuilt. Yes. Supposedly he was convinced because I think it was Daniel that said, hey, did you know that this actually says your name, that you will do it? And so uh, yes, Cyrus right. as a conquering hero. Yeah. That was the name of Cyrus, yes. And yet uh, time went by, and I think they put a hold on the rebuilding and so on. And as you say, the king of Persia... 
uh, again, with the idea that I think that they were accused and falsely accused of rebuilding and, and, uh, and mounting a, an insurrection against the uh, emperor. And it was King Darius in Ezra chapter 6 who, uh, in a night, he, if I remember correctly, was I may be confusing him with, uh, with the book of <laughs> Esther, but he... It seemed like in the night he was reading or uh, the books or something, and he he found the passage where he found that original order in another of the palaces to rebuild the temple and authorizing the uh, Jews to resume construction of the temple. And Darius was the one who uh, went ahead and uh, reissued that order, the permission to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. It, it's all an amazing story of God's intervention uh, to uh, bring about his plan, his uh, his already predicted and prophesied plan, and all part of the redemptive plan of God for humanity, uh, using the people of Israel. Give us a call, folks, 340-9585. Jacob and I would love to hear from you. Bible Live with Sophie Dollar. Joining us this evening for the Bible Live, the, the quiz show program. We're excited that you're along with us, and hopefully, as we make our way through the scriptures each year, uh, from Genesis to Revelation, through these different books and these different eras, these different times of uh, biblical the biblical narrative. Um, 1400 years uh, covered in the script in the book itself for uh, uh 66 different books and we're talking about Ezra and Nehemiah these days this uh these leaders neither of them levites but they became uh, leaders helping the people of Israel as they returned from the 70 years of exile in Babylon and uh Ezra and Nehemiah and of course uh Jacob I, I'm mindful of the fact that a, a lot of talk today in our own culture here in America there's a lot of talk about uh, rebuilding. <laughs> There's a lot of talk about a wall here in America. Uh, someone said they're going to build a wall and, and so on. But w we're looking here at Ezra and Nehemiah as, as they rebuild. Uh, Ezra focuses on rebuilding the temple, the altar and the temple and so on, <clears throat> and reestablishing the spiritual foundation uh, in the sense of the nation, while Nehemiah is focusing here on the defense of the land and the wall around the city. Of course, both of them are interested in spiritual, the spiritual lives and the, the uh, calling of the people. That they recognize that the that the true need of a nation and a people is is the spiritual foundation is is more important. And so that would be right off the bat. That would be a great lesson for us to remember in the times in which we're living now in our own land. These have some these books have some great principles about rebuilding and remembering our uh, our foundations and our remembering our our uh the the unique uh, calling even of our own nation of America, uh, a city on a hill and that sort of thing. Uh, so it, they, these books have a great number of principles for us, even in our modern era as well. But um, 
I, I want us to use this last segment. Maybe we can answer some of these questions that you brought up to us. One of the things that people experience in the book, book of Ezra is that Ezra goes back and he sees some things uh, when he arrives 80 years after the first group went over. He recognizes that there's some things going on that the people have uh, moved away from the keeping the laws of God, the, the commandments that God had given to the people of Israel, the distinctives that would keep them safe and strong as a culture, as a society. And uh, one of those things that he noticed was going on caused him a, a great deal of grief, um, weeping and throwing himself on the ground in front of the temple. Uh, he actually, This was very public. And his mourning and his regret about this sin he, that he perceived there in the people. And we read about it in, um, let me see, we read about it in chapters nine, 8, 9, and 10 of the book, chapter 9. And we don't really understand it very well in the times in which we live. We, we live in a very uh, racially, culturally uh, blended society. America, kind of the melting pot, they talk about us in that way. Um, and, and so sometimes this is a little hard for us to perceive, and we misunderstand it, I think. Uh, Ezra noticed that the, the the practice of the Jews living there in that era, uh, they were intermarrying with people, uh, with pagan wives, those who, it wasn't a matter of race or, or culture, it was a matter of uh, of intermarrying with unbelievers, those who didn't trust God and follow the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it was, uh, therefore, a compromising their, their own faith and their own practice of their faith and, and loyalty uh, and to, to keeping the commands of God. Uh, you can correct anything I might have said wrong there, but uh, maybe you can also give us some guidance about why this was not racism. Well, it's, uh, <clears throat> you're right, Sophie. It appears as, as first bluster as a surface reading, it's racism. Because uh, it has to do, if you like to use this term, it might be religious racism, something like that. But it has to do with uh, if the women were of different religions, they were not basically, as we know from the Torah, that the, the land of Israel was given to the Jews. Now, if, and you saw it took a long time, after they talked about the so-called intermarriage, to go through and determine how many people, how many wives, shall we say, are, were really foreign wives. If it was so easy to base on racism, they'd say, oh, I can tell you're a Hamarite, you're a Moabite, you know, you're something else. They could tell real easy if it was race. They wouldn't have had to take months and months to do it. In fact, the reason we, is, we're actually... Huh? Aren't we actually given a number uh, of people that were affected? Yes, yeah. Would you like to know the number? Yes, that would be interesting. Uh, At the end of the day, only 113 were discovered to be uh, actually consistently married to uh, pagan women or women of anti-Jewish, anti-God religion. Now, the reason is, here's the reason it took so long. Because anybody, regardless of race, can convert to be a Jew. Uh, However, sincerity toward God is the standard, not uh, for married purposes. Now, some people, you know, might want to convert to be for marriage. 
And that's not considered uh, to be a legitimate conversion. In other words, if a person wanted to convert and be Jewish, no problem. But it has to be dedicated based on their personal beliefs and the, and the God of Israel, and that they want to be that way. If they convert simply as an excuse, then they really technically have not become Jewish. So and, and that's actually what uh, even today, right? Is that part of a practice that that people would go through for intermarriage with uh, those outside the faith? Would that be a process that it's still active today? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, sir. And it goes on. And I've heard, you know, uh, I know you come from a Baptist tradition, and I've heard some Baptist preachers say, oh, well, you shouldn't marry an unbeliever. Don't be unequally yoked, that kind of thing. Uh-huh. I know in a Catholic, the priest will not marry somebody that's not of the same Catholic faith. And basically the same thing is in the Jewish world. Now, you can have intermarriage uh, in the Jewish world. And, of course, we all know that does cause sometimes, especially with children, some conflict. But what's happening is, in the book of Ezra, we're taking months and months to talk to everybody and say, well, you converted. And the conversion was much different than it is now. It's basically uh, just a self-proclamation that I want to convert. Uh-huh. And, and so they want to determine, are you doing this so you can keep your family together, or are you doing it because you really believe this? Now, um, I know of situations where um, certain rabbis, like Catholic priests, will not marry. I know others that will. In fact, uh, I recently I read a report that said in America, something better than 70% of the Jews are actually getting involved in intermarriage. Mm-hmm. Now, what that means is, is that means that if they don't bring the idea of Jew Judaism or Jewish religion with them, and they don't sincerely bring it, then you're looking at, if I may put it this way, another Holocaust. Because it could keep going to where there's nobody that believes in Jewish religion if you intermarry and intermarry, and it gets diluted to the point where, you, because of the intermarriage, you no longer believe that they become a different religion. In fact, many, many, in fact, I think from what I read, the majority of the people that get involved in intermarriage, generally their children leave Judaism. Hmm. So you, you, in a sense, are looking at a, what you might call a spiritual holocaust, you might say. Mm-hmm. So that's a big concern. Intermarriage isn't, uh, isn't the issue. Race is not the issue. The race is uh, your relationship with God. Well, I, I, oh, you and I have talked about this uh, so very many times in our private and sometimes here on the air as well that I, I, I have to think more uh, uh, about that. I, I, as you know, I consider us as what we call, in the religious sense, Christian, religious Christians, our religion, Christianity as opposed to Judaism and so on, but. Frankly, uh, spiritually, in reality, I'm not sure we aren't a continuation of Israel. We are grafted in. We're, uh, we have we follow and, and worship uh, Jehovah, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and so on. And many times I've, I've, I've quoted these factors, and uh, I don't think you're in any danger of uh, uh, maybe the the religion, the particular, but but even there, there are so many now of uh, many 
what we'd call religiously, at least uh, Christian denominations and congregations, churches, are really uh, now reviving uh, the celebration and the marking of many of the uh, uh, of um, the Passover, uh, um, Yom Kippur, other other of these key dates and important times that they're we are understanding and seeing that they are important for us as well uh, mm-hmm. as we come as we're part of that redemptive plan of God, which is part and parcel of the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, Leviticus, all we don't see that much of a division. So anyway, I hope I don't confuse people with that. But you and I have talked about that before that um, I, I, I don't know what to make of that idea that uh, that the Jewish religion would become weakened and, and disappear. Let's go ahead and touch on that for a moment. What we're referring to is not that, uh, the, as it says in the book of Romans, I believe that's what you're referring to, uh-huh. it says they're grafted in. And that's fine. Even at the temple, there was uh, what they call the courtyard of the non-Jews or the oh, Gentiles. Sure. Yes. So it was attached. It was, if you will, grafted in. So it was, e- it, was the- it was equal. They had another spot, and they may have a little different view. But the problem is, is this. Let's say, and as was a great example, he was a scribe, not a priest. He studied the law so he could teach others. But here is the issue. What happens if the Jews are required? I'm just going to give you an example because you brought up the, the appointed times, the, the feast days, et cetera. What happens if the Jews no longer follow those or respect those or do God's laws? Now you've got a situation where it's not just saying that, well, I'm equal and everybody's equal and all grafted in together. That's fine. And, and it doesn't make a difference what racial world or ethnic division you come from. But what happens if the person that says, well, I'm doing this, but I don't have to do this Jewish stuff. In fact, among certain really uh, far out uh, attenuated liberal or uh, even more than liberal Jews, they don't think they need to do any of the God laws anymore. In fact, and that's fine. I mean, every person has a right to make it their own mind. Mm-hmm. But the religion itself is a dedication to borrowing from God and using God's laws on how to live on earth. Uh-huh. If the Jews abandon that, because the Torah is not about getting to heaven. The Torah is how to live on earth. Mm-hmm. If they abandon that, then technically they will be doing exactly what caused the Babylonian and the Roman conquest of Israel. And we've got our lessons written down for us. Don't do this if you say you're in this religion, you're Jewish, you're required on how to live on earth, how to do these things. If you abandon it, you've simply got to look at what happened to the Babylonian conquest, the Roman conquest, and the, the sin or the wrong is constantly referred to is the failure to obey God's laws. In fact, we didn't get to it, but in Nehemiah, we go down, uh, and there's a great uh, there's a passage late in Nehemiah about how they, uh, let's see if I could find it here, it's in your questions. Um, it's about how they charged interest, and they were not to charge interest, how they would sell the land yes. and not respect that the land returned to the original owners after a period of time. So they were disobeying God's laws for his land. Now, going to 
do that, then you, you're choosing to be, if you like, grafted in, but you're not choosing to obey God's laws, and that's the heart of how to live in this world according to God. Yeah, and they and you do have uh, with the people of Israel with that they do have a unique calling on their lives. And again, uh, I think it needs to be constantly emphasized, at least to our era and time, that this was not a racial or ethnic uh, calling. This was a religious calling, and, and as you say, there were many. Uh, as part of Israel, who were Moabite, you know, there was Ruth of Moabitess, there was Rahab there was from from um, Jericho, and so on, and many others as well. There were men and women from other cultures and societies who were part of Israel. Look at uh, David's thirty mighty men. Many of them were from different cultures, and, and uh, of course, but but yeah. they, but they followed they following they were following after the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They so this we're talking about a. Uh, a, a spiritual identity here that that actually we see from Moses in the time of God's choosing of the people of Israel, bringing them out of Egypt and so on, that there is a unique calling on you to be uh, to be God's people, to trust him, to obey him and to be a light uh, of revelation to the nations around you, the other empire, Egypt, uh, Assyria, Babel and so on, Babylon and so on. And, and when you were true to that calling, into your calling, you were a blessing to the nations and people groups, and, and you were blessed as a people. Israel is blessed, and we see in the, in the scriptures, when they were true to that calling, when they disobeyed it and walked away from that, that devotion to God and obeying his commands, then that is when quite often then, as, as was promised in the scriptures as well, they were disciplined uh, and, and to call them back to that to that. To that that unique calling that they have to know and worship the true and living God and to to be an instrument of revelation that God would use to bless the nations. I, I hope people get that, and, and that's I think that's part of what Ezra and Nehemiah are running into here as they go back. They're trying to remember, uh, they're trying to remind the people of who they are and their unique, not just as a nation of you know, patriotism, but their unique calling by God to, to uh, worship him, to obey him, the true and living God, the one true living God, monotheism, and to uh, to uh, obey him and worship him as he, they were commanded to do so that they could experience God's blessing, his protection, and that they could be used by God to be to to spread the news, the good news of of the of uh, of the true and living God. So it's uh, it, it is interesting here that it, it, and the response of the people here was interesting to me as well in the book of Ezra is that they um, they responded and they did uh, this limited group. Uh, there were tens of thousands uh, of people, if not a uh, hundred thousand people in the nation at that time. And only, as you said, what did you say? A hundred and fifty. There's a listing of them. Uh, a hundred. It's actually a hundred and thirteen. You'll actually find them if you count them. Yep. In the last book of Ezra, it gives the exact accounting. And and uh, they were called upon then to leave those. Uh, Marriages, those those compromising relationships that would call them away from their worship of the true and living God, and I'm certain you know, in that context, the opportunity was given for people to to convert and express true and heartfelt conversion as well. Uh, in that situation, this was a I, I'm sure this was a painful and difficult process because nobody likes to. I, I've had to as a pastor uh, uh, in some years. I, I've had to actually confront. 
people in a congregation and, and lovingly and as gently as I can and yet using scriptures to correct them and to call them to repentance and, and talking and back and saying, you know, if not, you know, we would have to ask you to uh, not to quit coming. You can continue to come to church, but you can't be a formal part member of the congregation if you continue these particular practices and so on. And nobody likes to do that. I mean, that's a very painful, hard thing for uh spiritual leadership to do whether it's a rabbi or a pastor or a spiritual leader in a ministry to to exercise spiritual discipline and call people uh, it's not something that Ezra or Nehemiah found joyful and delightful to do it was a difficult task and yet they were courageous enough to do it and uh, and they saw fruit there were people who uh, in in the book of Ezra it says that there were many who did regret their sin and they they repented they turned away from their sin and we see you know, chapter 10 you know, Sophie, yes. uh, this is the, actually, Ezra, Nehemiah, is actually, in Hebrew, the word is hakel, but it's what you're familiar with that Jesus did on the Sermon on the Mountain. The, the Sermon on the Mountain is not a first-time event. We will find it actually starting in the chapter 8 of Nehemiah. Uh, every, every so often, the designee or the person that functions as a, the official king, whether it's king or not, the leader. must give, must teach the Torah. And that's what Jesus was doing. It's called Sermon on the Mount. But you'll find the exact same thing, or the hakel, the, the Sermon on the Mount from the Hebrew. It occurs at least eight times uh, prior to Jesus. Uh-huh. And it does occur in Nehemiah. And when they, they come and they have, uh, there's a they have this uh, time when they met with Ezra, and they repented, and they listened to the teaching of the Scriptures. And then in say, Nehemiah chapter 8, it says, The entire people assembled as one in the square before the water gate. Uh, and they asked Ezra the scribe to bring a scroll of the Torah of Moses in the seventh month. So we can actually discern when the Sermon on the Mountain was. And because this is not a first-time event, it's the status and the timing that occurs, and it does occur repetitively. And it actually, historically, is the book of Deuteronomy. And and then if you go on through the what's called in the modern terms the Beatitudes, the blessings, in other words, that's what Beatitudes really means. Uh-huh. You're seeing the same thing that goes on with Ezra and Nehemiah. It's a, let us teach you the law. That is the leader or the king's responsibility. And he must do it. It's commanded in the Torah. Mm. Now, if uh, they didn't, they did not obey. Ezra studied Torah, became an expert. Nehemiah did also. Certainly they were religious, but they studied Torah. Jesus knew the Torah, too. Had he not done that, and not taught the Torah at the Sermon on the Mount, then he couldn't have been without sin. And he, but he did it, and so therefore his Sermon on the Mount is a repetitive event that has occurred many times throughout the Old Testament mm-hmm. and in the New Testament. Eight times we have this public reading of the scriptures. I remember, and 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 almost every time it's connected with with what we would be called today a modern day, a, a revival, a, a a time of repentance and restoration and renewal. I remember uh, under. Um, uh, Josiah, the young child king of Israel, he read the the scriptures himself. They were read to him, 
and he wept and tore his clothes in repentance and had their scriptures read uh, read the, the scriptures the uh, Deuteronomy there the Torah to the people and that sparked a time of revival as well and then later on there was it uh, Hezekiah is also that had the scriptures read to the people and, and there yeah. was a time of restoration and renewal and uh, yeah. so very often the t- the reading of the scriptures have been a time of people remembering and and God uses the power of his word to touch the hearts of the people. And he did so here in the book of Ezra. And uh, also we see here, as you said, in the Nehemiah chapter 8. And I would encourage people to read that if if they haven't read it in a while. It's a very dramatic and very powerful moment as they finish now the wall. In 52 days, they finish this project of rebuilding the walls around Jerusalem. And now they meet and they gather and Ezra is asked to read the uh, law, read the Torah to them, and it sparks. If I, if I, if, yes, if I might, in chapter eight, uh, thirteen, verse thirteen through the end, uh, and the beginning of chapter nine, actually, uh-huh. it will actually go through the exact time that's listed in Deuteronomy that this must be done. Yes, isn't, isn't that fascinating? Tell, tell us about that. Is there a, what particular time is it? Is it uh, it's one of the it's, festival uh, days, right? Yes, uh-huh. it has to be done once every seven years. That has to be done by only the person functioning as a king. Uh-huh. It has to be done at a place you actually says the place you'll choose. So Mount Tabor, where Jesus was, or wherever. But it actually goes on and actually says in Deuteronomy. On the release of the on the day of the which we call the Feast of Tabernacles or the uh, uh, what's the other term they use in the Christian world? Yes, uh, Feast of Tabernacles. I'll think of it in a minute. Go ahead. Well, well, anyway, but at that time, once every seven years, it's the duty of the king, the guy functioning as the king. And see, this is what's so important, frankly, about Jesus. When in Matthew seven twenty nine, I just happen to remember that. It says he was functioning as now as one with authority, not as a scribe. Well, what's that telling you? Not that he's divine, but he's doing what God commanded to read the Torah, to teach the Torah. And it's time. So we can actually determine the day and year it was done. And that's exactly what's taking place in Nehemiah. And it goes on through the whole thing in chapter well, it's, it's over, and I remember when you first told me that, I was, I, there was so striking and so powerful a thought, an idea, that it, the, the Terminal Mount, the, the, the teaching of the Torah there, was actually a messianic claim that Jesus was fulfilling that role that the king, the leader, is supposed to fulfill. Jacob, it's so good to hear from you. Be safe in your journey. Say hi to Tab and give him a big hug and say thank you from Will from that gift he brought to him. The Bible Live is God bless you folks. See you next week here on The Bible Life. And it's brought to you by Crew Military Ministry. Mailing address is P.O. Box 18888. That's Box 18888. San Antonio, Texas 78218. Hear the entire Bible every year on The Bible Live, weeknights at 930 on this great station. Then join Soapy every Sunday evening at 9 o'clock for fun, inspiration, and valuable prizes on The The Bible Bible Live Quiz Show. Visit our website, BibleLive.com. That's BibleLive.com for more information about Soapy and the Bible Live broadcast. You may also order materials at the website and make tax-deductible donations to help crew military minister to our military personnel and broadcast the entire Bible every year to America and the world.
Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.